The year is 1951, and something big has just happened in the Kidlit community. Sydney Taylor's all-of-a-kind family has hit shelves, offering mainstream American audiences a long-overdue look at life for a Jewish-American family. For many readers, this was the first exposure to Jewish life outside of the terror and trauma of Jewish history and anti-Semitism. Sydney Taylor's semi-autobiographical tribute to her own childhood growing up on New York's Lower East Side, written so her own daughter might see her traditions represented on the page, spawned four sequels, not to mention a legacy for Taylor herself. In recognition of the author's work, the Association of Jewish Libraries gives an annual award in her name. So yeah, All of a Kind Family was and is a pretty major deal, and we are finally talking about it on SSR. The book is mostly a quiet account of a year in the life of a Jewish-American family, in which five daughters and their parents navigate daily challenges and victories and occasionally get to celebrate holidays. It deals frankly with matters of class and money, offers a nice introduction to Jewish traditions, and even features a romance subplot that genuinely shocked me at the end. On today's episode, my guests and I discuss our favorite moments of All of a Kind Family, as well as its overall significance. We spend some extra time chatting about the pressures the author may have felt in presenting this account of Jewish life for young readers in the 50s and digging into the depiction of the parents, especially Mama. Additionally, we cover patriotism, model minorities, historical fiction as a genre, young crushes, identity, fat phobia, and more. In the months since previous guest Meryl Wilsner recommended Talene Vascuni's Sorry Bro to all of you, I have had many people report back to me about how much they loved the book and how much they would love to hear from the author. You asked and we made it happen. Talene is here for episode 261. She is an Armenian-American writer who grew up in the Bay Area diaspora, surrounded by a rich Armenian community and her ebullient family. She graduated from UC Berkeley with a BA in English and currently lives in San Francisco working in tech. Other than a newfound obsession with writing romances, she spends her free time cultivating her kids, her garden, and her dark chocolate addiction. Sorry Bro is her first published novel. Find Talene on Instagram at Talene Author and on Twitter at Talene Vascuni. Recently, I got super frank on the SSR blog about the importance of Patreon support for the podcast, especially as I look ahead to my maternity leave from the show at the beginning of 2024. As much as I wish I could keep on prepping for, recording, and releasing new episodes, I am a one-woman show, and it's just not going to be possible. But this is quite literally the most important time for you to step up as a patron if you're a fan of the pod. I have been producing tons of free content for the last five and a half years, and while this is a passion project, it's also required a big financial and time investment. I want to come back strong in the spring, but I will need increased support from Patreon in order to do so. Patrons will still be able to cash in on most of their exclusive benefits, including the SWR Book Club, while I am on leave, so I promise you'll still be getting your money's worth without new episodes hitting your feed every week. I hope you will consider showing a little extra love for SSR at this important moment. Learn more and join the Patreon community at www.patreon.com slash ssrpodcast or by going to www.ssrpodcast.com and clicking support at the top of the page. I am so thankful for all the patrons tuning in now. With maternity leave on the horizon, I also appreciate your five-star ratings and reviews, as well as your shares on social media. If you enjoy this episode, and I am sure you will, I hope you'll take a screenshot of it and post it to your Instagram story, tagging me at SSRPod so I can see it and share. Spooky season is upon us, and my friends at Inkwell Threads have the perfect bookish gear for anyone who loves the fall and Halloween as much as they love to read. 
You can get 20% off all Inkwell Threads purchases when you use code SSRPOD at checkout. Shop the whole collection at www.inkwellthreads.com SSRPOD and be sure to use that code SSRPOD. I am a big fan of all of Inkwell's products and I love sharing them with you. Now let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hofkosik, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Talene. Welcome to SSR. Oh, thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Today we are chatting about Sydney Taylor's All of a Kind Family, and this is a book that has been requested pretty consistently over the years, particularly by my Jewish listeners. And it's interesting because I come from a Jewish family and I had never heard of this book. Nobody ever gave it to me. I'd never seen it in a library. And I had it flagged because I really wanted to read it like for my own selfish purposes. And obviously it's been an important formative book for a lot of these readers. And Sydney Taylor is a really influential figure in Kids Lit. So I was excited when you chose it. And I'd love to hear a little bit more about why you picked it, if it's a book that you read when you were a kid, if it's a book that you heard of. Tell me all of those details. Yeah, definitely. So I was looking at the choices and when I was a kid, this would have been like calling my name and I can't believe I didn't see it. <laughs> like this is for me, just like telling you need to read this book. Look, there are a bunch of girls. They're dressed in these really cute little outfits. Yep. <laughs> and it's historical. And that is just the exact type of thing I would have loved to have read. And it, it talks a lot about Jewish faith and culture, which is so fascinating. And I also would have absolutely loved to have read that as a kid. So I must not have seen this, even though it does look vaguely familiar to me, but maybe not because I would have absolutely picked it up. So I'm brand new to it. But that was why I picked it and looked on the back and I thought, all right, little Tallinn would have loved this. So let me see what grown up Tallinn thinks of this. Perfect. So we're both coming into it fresh. I want to dig a little deeper into what you said about how this would have called your name because it's historical. And I've had this conversation with a few guests, but it's been a while. I always say that when I was a kid, I read so much historical fiction. Like it was my go-to. I couldn't get enough of it. Yes. But as an adult, I really am not into it at all. And listeners, Talina is shaking her head. She seems to be on the same page. What is that about? Why did we love it so much as kids? And why did we grow up to be adults that are just like not as into it? Oh my gosh. Did, did the magic die for us? What happened here? Like, <laughs> I don't know. Yes, I always loved imagining I was in a different time. And yeah, for the longest time, I thought, you know, in this very romantic way, like, oh, I was born in the wrong time. If only I'd been born in these times where we all wore these long skirts, things like that, which is so funny, because maybe the books romanticize it a lot more than, you know, the reality of what it would have been like to be a, a woman, maybe being a girl, not not as bad, but you know, being a woman, a lot tougher, I would say than it is than it is now. I'm not sure what it is. Yeah, I don't read as much historic. But then when I do, I do love it. Like when I read a multi-generation family saga, like Pachinko, mm -hmm. for instance, 
love, you know, I really do. Or um, Yagyasa's uh, Home Going. Absolutely love that. Yeah, that's a great one. Yeah. So I still do sometimes, but they tend to be very specific. It's usually this kind of like multi-generational thing and less of a, a period in time, like one, just like, let's read about like Caddy Woodlawn, for instance. I yes. Really loved. Yeah. Yes. I remember that one. I also wonder if it has anything to do with the fact that as kids, we were learning about some of these historical periods, like in tandem with reading these books. And I like don't have notes on this, but I would imagine that a lot of the historical fiction books that I was picking up were written about periods that I was learning about in school or periods that I had learned about somewhat recently in school. And so I already was like interested in those time periods. And this sounds so lazy and horrible, (laughs) but as an adult, I feel like I have lost so much of my history knowledge. Oh yeah. And so sometimes getting into a historical fiction book, it feels like I like have to do all of this additional mental work to understand the context. And that makes getting into the characters and the world of it a little bit less fun because I already feel behind, which is totally a me problem. (laughs) But I wonder if that has anything to do with it also. It probably does. I mean, you know, a life as an adult is is tougher. So when you're going to read a book, sometimes you're like, oh, no, like, (laughs) I I don't want to have to do all this extra work. And then it's kind of funny to think that as a child, you had more context and more knowledge. (laughs) But that's probably true, because you were that was your job. Like you go to school and you learn about the pioneers. And then you read a book about the pioneer um, fictionalized. So yeah, I mean, the irony of which with this book, I think is that at least where I grew up, there was very minimal education about Jewish life in America outside of World War II and the Holocaust in Europe. So I think that's one of the beautiful things about this book. And we'll talk about that more. Like this is just a book about being a kid and being a kid who happens to be Jewish American. Yes. The other thing that I wanted to ask you about big picture before we really get into the content of All of a Kind Family is the question of identity. And I know that you write about your Armenian American identity. And so I was extra excited to see that you chose All of a Kind Family because Sydney Taylor was doing the same thing. I did a little bit of reading about the origin of this book and she actually never intended to be a published author. She used to tell her stories of growing up on the Lower East Side, much like the family in this book, to her young daughter, because one day her daughter came up to her and said, why are the kids in all of the books that I read Christian? Wow. And Sydney Taylor realized that she'd had the same experience when she was growing up, and so she decided to start telling those stories, and then she sort of just for fun wrote them down, and her husband in a move that like I might have been upset about, but like probably would have eventually forgiven, submitted the manuscript to an award committee and it won and that launched her career. So she like never wanted to be this famous trailblazing author. I mean, listeners, this woman has awards named after her. The Sydney Taylor Award is the award that's given every year to recognize like the best contribution to Jewish children's literature. So she became a really big deal in writing about her Jewish American identity, even though that wasn't like her intention. So I'm curious, Talene, like if there's anything that you might wanna add in terms of like writing about your identity and representation and how that might've felt to you as a kid, like who may have been underrepresented in the books you were reading. Yeah, I mean, I actually, while you were talking about that, I was getting goosebumps because you realize how rare it is. And especially when this was published, 1950 something, uh, that was the copyright. Yeah, 1951. 
1951. Wow. So it's so beautiful that it, it did work out, even though maybe the method was not ideal for Steve Taylor, but it, the impact, you know, is is undeniable. So that that is so cool that, you know, she just wanted to tell her story. Like representation isn't some, you know, made up thing. It's this, it does make a difference that, you know, it's just like, let's let's tell it from our side. Like not everybody's homogenous is like there are tons of other stories. So I, I felt that too. Like there are so few Armenian stories, so, so few. And most of them are very tragic because of Armenians tragic past with the Armenian genocide in 1915. So understandably, you know, our stories are sad and especially because the genocide is still not recognized by Turkey and the United States just recognized it formally this uh, two years ago, I believe, by Joe Biden and Congress. But before then, none, no formal recognition. So it's a really painful part of Armenians' history. So that's why a lot of the books are incredibly sad, again, justified. But there's a lot of happiness in our culture, too. So I want to write about that. And it does remind me a lot of All of a Kind Family, where it's just like you said, their family living their lives, they happen to be Jewish. And let's talk about Jewish culture and tradition, but also, you know, just like what it's like to be a person in the world at, at this in this time period, living in the Lower East Side. So I tried to do something similar in Sorry Bro, just because I felt there was a, a gap there. Like there wasn't a happy, fun book about being Armenian. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. I, I love to hear that there are some parallels. And this quote might resonate with you. This was something that Sydney Taylor said about the origin story of these books. She said, I took my daughter, Joe down to the old neighborhood where Papa, Mama, and the five little girls had lived, but the past was dead there. It lived only in me. I decided to write it all down for Joe. Perhaps in this way, I could recreate for both of us some feeling of that other life. Wow, yeah, yeah, and how rapidly, I'm, I'm sure, yeah, the, it must have changed in the Lower East Side. Like the world she's describing is not, you know, I've been to the Lower East Side many times. It's not quite there anymore. It's in other maybe pockets and, you know, time has changed, you know, modernism and whatnot. But that's so lovely that she wanted to capture it in that way. And it felt it was so beautifully written. I, I really did feel like I, I was there. I was I was living it. I agree. So Sydney Taylor is actually the middle child in this family of five daughters at the beginning. The other four sisters, the two older and the two younger, are named for her four sisters. And then Sarah, the middle the middle daughter, is named, I think that's her given name, is Sarah. So Sydney is Sarah. Sarah is Sydney. And then the other four sisters are her real sisters. So there's a lot of autobiographical content in this book. And I think we should just like set up readers by letting them know this is like an episodic novel you don't have to read one chapter really to understand the next. Each story is is isolated. I think this would probably be a great read aloud book if you have young children at home because you could read one chapter every night and there's not a lot of need for like brushing up on what happened the day before. And they're short. They're really lovely. So I'd love to just kind of jump in, Talene. Where do you want to start? Were there any particular anecdotes or moments in the book that you found especially charming or interesting? As a parent now, I'm a parent to a four and one year old. I was very interested in the relationship of the the mother and the children and how she parented. And I thought it was pretty great, actually. The the mother character was written in a lot of with a lot of love. Like it, things are tough for this family, right? They money is tight, they can't have everything they want, but she has such a system down with these five kids that me with my two, I'm like, oh man, I really gotta step it up. I gotta be more like <laughs> mom in this. It is amazing, but it's also kind of done out of necessity, but still very impressive the way, you know, mom has the 
we eat this food, then we eat this food, then we eat this, then you get the penny and there's a song for it. And everyone goes to bed at this time and we have our routines and everything goes exactly according to the routine <laughs> at all times. And and I guess, yeah, it makes sense that Sydney Taylor was a parent when she wrote this book because you can feel she she writes a lot from the mother's perspective too the worrying about like ah oh, maybe this feels unfair but but what can we do and when she's trying to get ready for it was it passover and her kids get scarlet fever oh, yeah she's so stressed out but she's doing the best she can and she doesn't show how stressed she is so she's a little bit of a perfect mom but but you know at the same time i i appreciated it it was kind of nice not every mother in fiction is perfect like little house on the prairie the mom's kind of I reread it recently and mom's kind of mean. Like you know? That's a trip. Rereading yeah. that one is a trip. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. I, I was I looked up to the mother in, in this in this book and got some good ideas for, for my own parenting. It's a parenting manual. Who knew? Yeah. No, I agree with you. And I was thinking about so many things when you were sharing that. I have brought this up on a couple of other episodes about family-centric books that were written many, many years ago. As we said, this book was written in 1951. And I can't say that this is a fact, but I would assume that the mama character in this book is very young. Her oldest daughter is 10. And just given what I know about this time period and how things tended to go, I doubt that mama is much older than like, I don't know, 32, 33. Maybe she's even younger if she got married when she was 18 or 19. And That just puts this into even sharper focus for me because I'm 32 years old. I'm pregnant with my first child right now. And I'm like, oh my, like even that feels daunting. And I have it. I'm like, I have a dog and now I'm adding a baby to the mix. This feels like too much. And I am, you know, I have a great deal of privilege, which I do think partially comes with working hard for a little bit longer. Like my husband and I have waited and we are in a different position, but mama like is young. She has five children to deal with. She is part of a community that is not treated well. She is struggling financially. Her husband is not around. Mm -hmm. And yet this is just what she does. And she goes about her business and her tasks and her chores pretty happily like we really don't see her crack one time nope not at all and she she does face you know a lot of some tough i mean she's every day it's hard every day is hard for her and then there are little things that are tough too but she finds she finds a way through and i i i think yes it probably is a little idealized but at the same time it is i don't know like it, it made sense in the world of the story it's like this is she's she's a very organized person she has pride in her home and her work. Like she knows her job is important too. And her husband also appreciates it. I did like that one point in the book during one of the holidays where her husband points out, like he thanks his wife for the meal and for all the preparations and, and things. And, you know, obviously this is written a long time, written a while ago and about time even before. So it's very gendered, like women's job is in the home. The men's job is outside the home. However, I did like that dynamic of like the mom's job is just as, if not more, you know, important and everybody appreciates it. So I thought, I thought that was, that was pretty, that was pretty great too. Yeah, it did seem like there was a lot of respect between the parents. We didn't see them bicker. We never saw him condescend to her or do the whole like, oh, my sweet little wife thing. Like yep. they really did seem to admire each other for what they brought to the relationship and to the family. And it occurs to me now, again, like bringing in my own personal experience in the last chapter of this book, mama has a sixth child. And because oh. this book takes place over the course of a year, 
I'm now realizing that she was pregnant for a lot of this book and having recently survived my first trimester (laughs) (laughs) and now dragging my ass through the second, I'm like, oh my gosh, she was doing all of this while pregnant. And like, again, nobody ever sees this woman sweat. I know. You know, that is so funny. I can't believe I didn't make this connection, having been pregnant twice. Like, I should have thought about it. It's hard, especially sometimes. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Mama's a machine. (laughs) There's no air conditioning, Telling. There's no air conditioning. She's taking these children on trains to go to Coney Island so they can be in, like, 85-degree weather instead of being stuck inside without air conditioning. She's dragging mattresses off of bed frames so they can sleep on the floor where it's cooler. Like, I am such a wimp. Oh, same, same. (laughs) With my second one, my third trimester, I was just like, I can't move. Sitting down on the floor and getting up was too much for me. So I can't can't imagine what this mom. Yeah. And in that Coney Island part when it was very hot, she's worried about her kids. Like she's less talking about herself and like, oh gosh, I need to do something for them to like get them out of this house. Just wow. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You talked for a moment about the fact that the portrayal of mama might be idealized. And I think that's worth lingering on for a moment as well. Since we know that this book is at least to some extent autobiographical, I wonder how much of it is just this feeling like this wistfulness that an author gets like thinking back on her childhood, on her parents. I don't know if her parents were still alive when she wrote this book, but I really like appreciated the fact that there was like this real fondness for her reflections on childhood. And we recently did an episode about Cheaper by the Dozen, which it was just like a really fascinating experience. Listeners, if you haven't listened to it yet, I would go check it out. And there were some similarities in that the authors of that book were reflecting on their own childhood and it was clearly meant to be like a tribute to their parents. But they, like, mostly, as far as my guests and I were concerned, like, put all of their parents' dirty laundry out there. Like, the dad was horrible. Like, we had some serious concerns about the father's behavior and the way that the mom was a little bit complicit in some of it. And look, like, no family is perfect. And certainly no family in 1951 is perfect. And they were dealing with a lot. And I'm sure there were things that Sydney Taylor decided not to include in this book. A, because it's a book written for kids and she's trying to simplify the narrative. But B, because like she probably has some degree of respect for her family and doesn't want to include like all of the bad things that happened. And there are five more books that follow in the series. So maybe things do get a little bit more complicated. But I just like did feel that this was really a book that transported the author in the writing experience, like back to what it feels like to be five, six, or seven years old and like watching your mom specifically, like your mom just be this beautiful, perfect, capable, calm person. And I think a lot of people feel that way about their parents, even if they have complicated relationships with their parents, like so many of the moments that tend to rise to the top, if you're lucky, give you that feeling of like, oh, my mom was just so graceful you know like I feel like that's kind of the voice that this book is written in yes I I think there's a lot of that is absolutely true and it must be pretty true to life too of course you know no like you said no parents perfect but I think if her real experience of her mom and dad was very different it would have come through in the book like yeah she must have had actually a pretty darn competent mom and and pretty loving too like not as effusive you know as a, a mom could be but definitely an acts of service type of, of love language with, with the mom with the mom here also i do wonder if a small part of it because of the well possibly not because she 
okay, so what I was going to say, and we can talk about this, is because she was writing about a Jewish faith and Jewish story, and there weren't stories like this, is there this like pressure to show like, since we are the minority, and um, do I need to idealize it a little bit to show like, hey, we're the perfect minority kind of thing, which I'd imagine I was even cognizant of it while writing my book, like I want to Armenians aren't perfect, of course not. But really, what do you show? What do you not show? How much do you, if this is the first like comedic Armenian book, like I'm not going to be sitting here trashing Armenians for 350 pages. So I wonder if there's a little bit of that too, but that's like authorial intent. And if her intention was not to publish this for a wider audience, maybe that didn't play into it. Oh, I'm so glad you brought that up. And I'm so glad that you sort of like brought in your own experience to that because I hadn't thought about that. Like, so many of the essays that I read about this book, and I will link to all of them in the show notes listeners, like almost everybody who wrote those essays talks about how this was like the first, their first exposure, if they were not Jewish themselves or raised Jewish themselves to like a quote, normal Jewish family. A lot of those essays talk about how like, this is the first time they write about a Jewish family that wasn't like trying to escape Germany. Like this was just a family living their life. And yeah, I wonder if Sydney Taylor... I mean, yes, she probably just wanted to simplify the stories because they were initially just like bedtime narratives for her daughter. But I would imagine that even though her her husband like went around her to submit the manuscript and it won and that's how it got published, like she probably got to edit it. And she probably did feel some pressure to make sure that if this was going to be the first book that a lot of people read about a Jewish family, they were able to perceive that family in a certain way. And like, I can't imagine the pressure, especially in 1951. Like, she was in it. <laughs> and oh, we're still in it. Yeah. <laughs> 1951. Like, she was oh. very much in it. That's so much pressure. And I use this word with major air quotes, scare quotes, whatever you want to call them. Like, she probably wanted to make sure that this family just seemed, like, normal. Like, how do I make this family seem not just nice, not just kind, not just loving, but just, like, normal people? Mm-hmm. Like me and you. Yeah. yeah. Like, yes. Oh, that's fascinating. No, I'm I'm so glad we got into that a little bit more because mama was just like very likable. Like she just handles everything. Like the thing with Passover really could have put anybody over the edge. I would have been yelling for sure. And I don't like to yell. I'm not a yelling mom. And if I do, I apologize. But whew, sometimes <laughs> your buttons get pushed. You're stressed. <laughs> Me on vacation. I'm not a, a chill mom on vacation. <laughs> so I could just imagine the kids sick <laughs> having to do Passover. Yeah. I mean, listeners, she's preparing for this major Jewish holiday, Passover, which is like multiple days of feasts that are supposed to be prepared in a specific way. You have to prepare your home in a specific way for a few days before. There's all this prep you have to do. It's a production. And two of her five daughters come down with scarlet fever a couple of days before Passover begins. That's difficult and scary in itself. And so they have to be quarantined, which of course is like fascinating language to us in 2023 in a way that I'm sure it wasn't for many readers when they were reading the book in the 70s, 80s, 90s, early aughts. Yes. So they're quarantined in their room. And then two of the other daughters get it and also has to be quarantined together. Like the whole house has to be reconfigured basically so that the one daughter who doesn't have scarlet fever, who like kind of is mad that she doesn't have scarlet fever because (laughs) she wants to be babied. And I kind of get that in a sick way. Yeah, Like she is sleeping alone and then mama is still having to do all of these preparations. The board of health has come and like, 
basically painted a huge sign on their door that says like, nobody come near these people, they're sick, which is so humiliating, Yeah, especially in a community where everybody is meant to be celebrating this Jewish holiday. Like they live in a Jewish enclave of New York. So everybody knows what's happening. This is just such a mess. And yet mama manages to pull off all of the things that she has to do for Passover. Not only does she pull it off, she makes the meals and she somehow manages to like include her four ill daughters they just open the door so that they can participate in Seder. Yes, they still do. And they were so excited to shouting from the doorway, Gertie, the youngest. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think there's just so much good content in this book, like educational content, too, about yes. Jewish holidays and Jewish traditions. Some that I needed. I didn't know about some of <laughs> yeah. these traditions and holidays because I grew, I grew up in a primarily like culturally Jewish family. And we tended to celebrate the bigger holidays and not so much some of the others, yeah. or at least the, the holidays that my family deemed the bigger holidays. I, of course, don't want to make assumptions. Yes. And I thought that Sydney Taylor did such a beautiful job of explaining each event and each tradition without laying it on too thick. Like it was just the right amount. I think she made them sound fun, which is so important. I remember growing up as a kid, like Hanukkah was so uncool compared to Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> but if I were a kid reading All of a Kind Family, I would be like, wow, they have all of these holidays. They really do highlight all of the like major holidays in the Jewish faith in this book and the delicious food that comes with each one and the interesting traditions and the costumes you get to wear. Like, I think if I were a young person who didn't know much about Jewish culture and history, I would read this book and be like, I want to participate in this. Yes, pour, the Purim celebration sounded so fun the way she did it. They get to make all this noise and then dress up and no one minds. They could just be as loud as they want because they're they're damning the, the evil prince. It was fantastic. Like It was fun to read about and it was kind of a great move having the book go over a course of the year so that we can enjoy and experience each holiday as the family was also experiencing it. So it was this wonderful way to slip in culture and history and religion in a very natural and interesting type of way. Like I enjoyed every, enjoyed learning about them myself. And then smack in the middle of all of it, we have the 4th of July, oh, yes. which was fascinating to me. And it got me thinking about, and this is like, I don't mean to be a downer about it, but this is a brief story about my grandmother's memorial service. And I was very, very close with my grandmother and listeners know a lot about her at this point. But I remember during her service, my great uncle was making a, a speech about her, among many others that were made. And he was listing out all of her accomplishments, of which there were many. And she happened to be an extremely liberal woman. And at the time that she passed away in 2018, like a lot of her beliefs were really being challenged. She was struggling a lot with what was happening in the country. He said in his speech, like, you know, she was a proud Jewish woman and she was a patriot. And everybody kind of like looked around at each other because it was just not a word that I had ever heard her use to describe herself. It's not really a word that people in 2018 were throwing around to describe anyone, especially in like my communities. Yeah. And he went on to explain how he was like, haha, like I know that, you know, I see a lot of your expressions. And he was talking about how as hard as it was sometimes over the course of her 85 years or whatever to reconcile some of her other identities with being a patriotic American person, it was really important to her to try to fight for those things to align and to live in harmony. 
And so as jarring as it was to suddenly see this like 4th of July celebration crop up in this (laughs) book, I immediately thought about that because what we see here is like this Jewish family trying to integrate and trying to reconcile their own very important Jewish traditions and rituals with the things that would make them, again, this word, normal Americans. Mm-hmm. And Sydney Taylor manages to show them doing that pretty well. And again, I think this goes back a little bit to what you were saying, Talene. Like, I'm sure to some extent, it was this idea of like, don't worry, everybody, they still celebrate the 4th of July. <laughs> yeah. In 1951, but I also wonder if there was like a deeper message in it for the author that wasn't so much about PR, that it was like, no, like there is a way to do this. And in in 2023, like everything is so polarized, it's kind of hard to think about reconciling all of that. So I appreciated the way that she was able to tie all those things together. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's so true, like the patriotism and the word patriot was so it meant something so different than in the last 10 years, I think. Yeah, it's a shame. Yeah, it is. Like, And you see exactly like the dad, father, you know, one of the kids kind of puts the flag on the ground like just a little bit. And he's like, no, no, we do not, you know, put the American flag on the floor. Like, give it to me. I'll fold it properly. There is a real pride in America. Like, they're happy to be there. And I do feel that a lot of, from what I know with my family, a lot of immigrants that did come here do did feel that way for a long time. And probably your, I mean, I don't know, I don't want to speak for it, but probably your grandmother did too. Mm-hmm. For many, not all, but for many, they felt it was a land of opportunity, perhaps better in some ways and worse in some ways than where, where they had come from. Like my mom, for instance, escaped a war, a civil war in Lebanon to come here. So America was paradise. There were finally no bombs, you know? So yeah, for her, patriotism was big and as and has continued to be in various forms. So I think there is a, a, a lot of that going on as well. Like it is authentic, but maybe also a touch of, yeah, hey, guess what? We also celebrate 4th of July. And it is just fun for kids. Like they're yeah. setting off fireworks. It's a great, a grand old time. Yes. I want to talk about one other kind of like, I don't know, I guess it's sort of a cultural element. And then we have to get into like the romance of it all. Yes, yes. Oh my gosh, I was thinking we got to talk about him. <laughs> but before we get to that, now that I've really like teased a little bit of a romance conversation, I want to touch on the role of money and class in this book because I was surprised and kind of like refreshed by how frank the author was about money. And mm-hmm. we mentioned this briefly before, but you were talking, telling about really like the allowance system in the house, how the kids each get a penny every day, which I was like, that sounds great. Like you get a penny every day in 1951. That sounds like, <laughs> that sounds like not terrible. Yeah. And it seems like the girls are being taught to be responsible with their money. Like they are given these pennies and they're allowed to do what they want with them. And The girls seem very aware of the fact that their family is not wealthy and that their father has to work very hard for the money he brings in. And they have very open conversations with each other, like among themselves about money and how they can help each other out. In the first chapter, one of the girls loses a library book and it's like the most dramatic thing that's ever happened. (laughs) She's mortified, which I totally understand. She does not want the people at the library to think that she is untrustworthy Uh and she is devastated because it's going to take her so long to pay the library lady as they call her back for this book and the girls have a conversation about how they can like join forces pool their allowances to make it easier for her to pay back 
the book faster. And I just feel like there were little moments like that throughout the book where we get these just very straightforward conversations about money. And I liked that a lot. Me too. It was very interesting to see too what they could buy for a penny. I was I was fascinated and trying to do some math in my head of like, okay, is that like $2 maybe a dollar today? And just like they get a little bag of chickpeas, for instance. I really like, yeah, the times of sisterly coming together where they all band together when they went to a candy store once. Yes. We're trying, oh, it was so cute. Like this scene is so worth reading and just felt so real. They were trying to decide what candy they could buy that would be worth it, last the longest, but also make them all happy. And they end up with the chocolate babies. Yeah. Like so great. And they're like eating, biting off one little hand at a time and just like trying to savor and make it last as long as possible. Oh, it was so, it was sweet. And also made me think that they really value, you know, the the little treats that come their way in, in such a cute, way and, and make me think about there, there's so much mass consumption right now and like so many toys and all this stuff and it really kind of made me rethink like all right how do you help kids understand you know the value of, of stuff and they seem to really really understand it yeah it was just very very well done I also appreciate the frankness and showing exact dollar amounts and exact things you could buy for it yeah there's even this kind of weird moment with the dad where they are all excited to buy papa a birthday gift Oh, oh no. <laughs> yes, Talene looks as heartbroken as I feel on the inside. Yes. And this was like a little, and I, I do appreciate this as listeners know, when authors show us that parents and adults are imperfect and that they mess up. Mm-hmm. And you spoke a little while ago about how like you will apologize to your children sometimes. And I love that. I'm going to log that away in my own parent how-to guide. But We see the girls, they work so hard. They're so mindful about pooling their resources to buy a gift for Papa for his birthday because they know how hard he works and how he has like no treats. And they buy him this like cup and saucer that is very fancy for the family. And they give it to him and he is not really that excited. He actually is kind of rude about it. Yeah. And it really hurts their feelings. The whole thing is very awkward and like kind of made me cringe. There's silence, right? He doesn't say a a word when he... (laughs) Is that was that what it was? Yeah. Yeah. He doesn't say a word. And the girls are all looking at each other like, oh, no, like he hates it. We did something wrong. So he we see like a crack in his otherwise seemingly really great parenting. And then I did write down this quote because I thought it was really nice. In the book, it says they had been so gay a moment ago. They were young. It was bad enough that they had to be denied so many things because he couldn't afford them. Must he deny them even this pleasure of giving up their small allowance for a present for him? And so then he's like, okay, yes, like, thank you. But yeah, for a moment, we get like this interesting peek into his head of like, why the hell did they buy me this? This is not something that I would ever choose for myself. I'm thinking about like, if I gave my dad a fancy cup and saucer, he'd be like, really? Like, this is what you like, you put your hard earned money toward. But he does realize that, you know, he probably should be a little bit more grateful and take the gift from the place it comes, which is they wanted him to have something special. Yes, yes, exactly. I love that they, yeah, they got into dad's head. The omnipresent narrator is, uh, omniscient, I mean, narrator is, is pretty great when those moments happen. Because he realizes he's he's made that mistake and he's hurt them. But at the same time, when he sees that cup and saucer, he's really just like, really, guys? <laughs> <laughs> this was the best you could do? Just yeah. save your money. Yeah, my dad would be like, save your money. Like, this was, just save those pennies. But again, these are young parents. They're figuring it out as they go. 
Let's talk about the romance. So we have to talk about Charlie. Charlie is Papa's good friend. And we meet him fairly early on. And I have to say that I was a little confused about what was going on with Charlie because we learned that he's like a little bit mysterious. He seems to have come from a wealthy background and now he is not wealthy and he does periodically just like disappear sometimes. But when he is around, he is like very around and hanging out in Papa's store and having dinner with the family. And the oldest daughter, Ella, clearly has a crush on him, which is very sweet. But then I kind of thought that there was like, and this is the adult in me, I kind of thought there's something going on with Charlie and Mama because like, (laughs) oh, (laughs) because there were a couple of scenes where like Charlie was hanging around and just the way they were talking. And again, this is like fully me being an adult in 2023 and reading into things that I'm sure were not intended to be read into. But I was like, why is this guy just hanging around? And Mm -hmm. Mama is totally entertaining it and indulging his every need. I didn't quite understand the relationship. What did you think about Charlie? Yeah, you know, I hadn't thought about that till now. I hadn't thought about him and Mama, but I did have the thought of why is he always around them? I (laughs) wondered that a little bit. Yeah, maybe... Maybe mama, I mean, they do talk about this and I do want to talk about this later, but they talk about how the mama is very beautiful as well yes. in a very not 2023 kind of way. We can get we can get into that. So that probably does have something to do with it. But I did wonder like, all right, Charlie, from a wealthy background, is, it, is maybe this family is so charming and lovely that he, and he really likes kids, I guess, but that he wants to be there. But so he's written, the first time you meet him is in Papa's shop and there are three other men there and they're all like salesmen men of the streets you know and there's a a polish guy i think and i i don't know how from my i don't know the stereotypes about someone polish but it felt like it was written a little stereotypically like it wasn't very yeah there was a polish guy and then i think the second guy she also identified his ethnicity and i think of the three charlie was like the only one who didn't feel like a bit of a caricature. Um, So yeah, I noted that as well, just for the record. Yeah, exactly. And Charlie's tall and blonde and beautiful and blue eyes, you know, just as classic of like the perfect man is, you know, and perfect person is blonde and blue eyed kind of a thing. And not Jewish, interestingly. Yes. Yeah. yeah, That was also kind of interesting. Yeah. I wonder if there was a little bit of, I'm not sure what was going on there, but so he, you know, he has these maybe... It, it written like marginally on the margins of problematic of like idealizing this, you know, Aryan Gentile kind of kind of person. But he is a nice guy and he does have I feel like he has facets. He has some dimension to him. And Ella's crush on him did feel very real to me. It's a little odd because I don't know how old she is in this book. I think she's 12, according to Wikipedia. Yeah. Okay. So she's 12. Yeah. I was like, is she, she's somewhere from 11 to 13, 14 even. But okay, 12. It felt real to me because I was a crush haver. Like I had <laughs> crushes <laughs> well before 12 even. Like hard crushes. Like crazy obsessive crushes from like 10. So I definitely feel, you know, that felt very real. It's a little weird thinking about uh, maybe a 12 year old like just fantasizing so much about this perfect this perfect guy but it, it at the same time it felt true to life to me and she feels so heartbroken when she finds out that he does have a a woman that he's loved and, and we can spoil this one right so do you want to do you want to tell the you can spill the beans but i do have to tell you that i was genuinely 
shocked oh, at this too. twist. And that me rarely too. happens when I read a book for the show because I am not like the 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 year old child that these books are meant for. Yes. And when like this was a true twist. Like until this point I was like this is a sweet, lovely, wholesome book, a little boring. I get why people like it, uh-huh. but not much has happened and then this happens and I was like, "Oh, Oh, wow. So I will let you share the big twist at the end. And it does involve our friend, the library lady. Yes. So Charlie did come from a wealthy family and he was in love with this woman and his parents did not approve. And when the woman heard that the parents didn't approve, she disappeared. She she went away. And then Charlie left his family, basically. He, he like sort of disowned himself, it sounded like. So he came here to Lower East Side, and when he disappears for like two weeks at a time, he's off searching for her, putting out ads, looking in different places, talking to people, trying to find the love of his life who has disappeared. And it turns out, the library lady is that woman that he's been in love with. I didn't see it even when they invited the library lady over to meet to come to the same holiday. What, which was it? Fourth of July? No, it was, I think it was Purim or no, it was was Sukkot, I think because yes. Yeah. Because the girls were so excited to show they, they're obsessed with the library lady, which I loved as a kid who loved books. Like I thought it was so cute that they want to be her friend and they want her to experience life with them. So they invited her over and yeah, they like, they have this moment where they lock eyes Yes. And and then everyone feels that something like immediately has happened. Like, whoa, the energy has changed. When when they were both invited, I thought what was going to happen is that Charlie was going to fall for the library lady and forget this other woman. So I didn't even get it when they were invited. I still wasn't getting the twist. And then I, as soon as it happened, I was like, oh, duh, but also what? <laughs> yeah. I mean, all signs were pointing that way because I was I like, know. why do we keep bringing up the library lady? I mean, I love her, but this is an episodic novel. Uh-huh. Why does she keep coming up in all of these random ways? She was one of the only consistent characters outside of the family. Yes. And then much was made of Charlie's romantic history and this, this story that he shared about his one true love. And Ella is like very taken by it because she's a hopeless romantic. But again, I was like, this is not a long book. And all of these little things took up a lot of page space, a lot of real estate, and I couldn't quite figure out why. And then when they lock eyes, it's very steamy for you know a children's book. And then I think they, I forget exactly what happened, but everybody was supposed to stay for dinner. And then the girls were like, well, where did Charlie and the library lady go? And they left. <laughs> They're making up for lost time. (laughs) Yeah, which I thought was so sweet. But I was genuinely shocked. And listeners know that I am very rarely shocked by one of these books. So I loved that. Um, Before we start to wind down our conversation, Talene, you did mention something about mama's looks and the way they're described in a very un-2023 way. And I want to make sure we circle back to that. What were your thoughts? Yeah, yeah. So trigger warning for fat phobia, but this book definitely has moments of fat phobia for sure. I actually marked the the passage. There, there are several, but the one about Mama was, oh gosh, it's almost even like tough to read. The children were pleased. At last, the library lady was going to see Mama. The children were very proud of Mama. Most of the other Jewish women in the neighborhood had such bumpy shapes. Their bodies looked like mattresses <sighs> tied about in the middle, but not Mama. She was tall and slim and held herself proudly. Her face is proud too. So uh, yeah, that's very cringe moment right there. I mean, I see attitudes were different, obviously, and this probably was the prevailing attitude, but there's this 
yeah, the, this classic thing of goodness and um, neatness, I don't know, um, tied with your, your body, which as we know is totally untrue. So that there's, there's a bit of that in the book. Yeah. And now that we've unpacked a lot of these other subjects, it makes me think about how like, yes, there are these stereotypes, I think about Jewish women and their body types, especially as they age. And it's interesting that it's like, mama is Jewish, but she's not Jewish like that. Yeah. 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 She's had five kids, but she's right. still slim. And she she's about to have a sixth, apparently. Oh, yeah. She's like, still slim. <laughs> screw you, mama, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, no, I agree with you. That was not the best. And something else that I that I just wanted more of in the book, if I had one sort of overarching complaint, it was that the girls did kind of like blend together for me. Mm. And again, it is a short book and there is a series. So I would imagine we learn more about each of the sisters later on. Yeah. But when I was collecting my notes before we jumped on today, you know, Wikipedia has like a breakdown of each of the five sisters and some of their key characteristics. And I was like, I didn't get any of that. Like, Mm-mm. I could tell you the names of the sisters, but I am actually pretty sure we didn't mention anybody's name, except maybe briefly, we talked about Elle, we talked about Sarah, but we haven't really talked about any of them as individuals in this conversation and that's not because we don't want to but it's because I don't really know anything about them and so I think if I had one like broader wish it would be for a little bit more about each girl because especially in 1951 I think that there were probably not a lot of stories where like young women young girls were written as nuanced individuals of their own so it would have been nice to see that Yes. Yeah, definitely. For the longest time, I was like, wait, Charlotte's the middle. Yeah. Charlotte's oldest, Henny and Sarah, like totally interchangeable to me. Like can't tell the difference. Gertie by then, because Gertie's name is also so distinct and she's the baby. I was like, okay. And Gertie gets her own stuff. Like she, because she's the baby, she can't do this. She has to stay home. She has to ride in the stroller, you know, things like that. So I'm like, all right, I know who Gertie is. <laughs> Everybody else is kind of blending. At, at least Gertie did get one nice moment in the end where she when the new baby is born, she oh, I felt for it because my son definitely had this, except he didn't get over it in one day. He took a long time, but <laughs> understandably. When the new baby is born, she's just like silent, holding back tears. And then she finally burst out like, but I'm the baby. Like, <laughs> I don't get to be the baby anymore. Like, that's her identity, you know. That was nice. And I just, I, I agree with you. Wish there were more moments like that where... It's like they're, this is their humanity. This is what makes them distinct. This is who they think they are and how it's being interrupted. Right. Yes. Well, I did like that for Gertie. It broke my heart, but I like that she had her moment. Yeah. On the whole, Telling, I know you didn't read this book when you were a kid and I didn't either. So we can't exactly compare it to our reading experience back then. But I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about how All of a Kind Family compares to the books that you do remember reading when you were a kid and if it holds up to those books, if it's a letdown. And just kind of on the whole, how it met or did not meet your expectations for it. Yeah, I, I thought it was very similar to the types of books I read um, as a as a kid, like in middle middle school or, or earlier. And this would have been the kind of book I read, probably enjoyed a lot, learned some new things, maybe even read a couple more in the series. At, at the end, I was curious and did want to read more. Maybe one have been my favorite book, because like you said, there's less intrigue less like plot and and things like that going on but it is charming like undoubtedly extremely charming so i I think i would have probably felt similarly back then as as i do now it's cozy i read one essay that describes it that way and another one that describes it as like every chapter feels like an episode of a really wholesome tv show yeah 
Yes. I think that's pretty accurate. But I'm glad we read it. Thank you for choosing this one so that we could finally get to it. Listeners, I can't wait to hear what your thoughts are on our discussion. Other than All of a Kind family, Talene, what have you been reading lately that you might recommend to our listeners? I actually just read uh, my agent, Caitlin Detweiler's book. She co-wrote it with Danny Tamborelli, her husband, who is, if anybody watched Nickelodeon in the the 90s, Pete and Pete, he's Little Pete. (laughs) That's her husband. So they co-wrote a book together, a romance novel called The First Date Prophecy. And it is loosely based. It's also loosely autobiographical based on their love story. And so the, you know, the, the, it's dual point of view. Of course, each of them write their point of view. And he writes it as a former like kid TV star. She writes it as a woman, you know, struggling in publishing. And it's very, again, like charming and quirky. It's like super quirky, fun, funny, just like sweet characters are really rooting for them. And if anyone was a Pete and Pete fan, you should definitely, you should definitely read it (laughs) for sure. I love the title too, The First Date Prophecy. And I've heard her name just like in the publishing world, but I didn't know that she had written a book. So I will have to add that to my list as well. And listeners, I will make sure to link that book in the show notes for this episode. I also can't wait to hear from you, Talene, about your book, Sorry Bro. This was recommended to us a couple of months ago by guest Meryl Wilsner. And I know that many of you listeners picked up Sorry Bro after that recommendation. And I will say all of those people have raved about the book. So like if you haven't picked it up, you have to pick it up. But before you do that, let's hear from the author. Tell me a little bit about the book, what inspired it, and what people should know. Yeah, and thank you. Thank you so much, Meryl. I really appreciate uh, their books. And um, that that would have been my other recommendation is uh, Mistakes Were Made, which I also loved. So Sorry Bro is a rom-com so he also steps a toe into women's fiction, a, a story about a woman in the San Francisco Bay Area who gets proposed to by her boyfriend in the most humiliating way possible and realizes she sort of needs a change of scenery and she, you know, turns him down. And she agrees to go to this series of events called Explore Armenia, which her mom pushes her to do. And uh, her mom really wants her to go husband hunting and find a good Armenian husband. So she goes to these events, but none of the men catch her eyes. This woman, Yerabuni, who's part of the uh, planning committee of Explore Armenia, and it's sort of his friends, friends to lovers, sort of like insta-like, uh, not insta-love. And as she goes through these events, goes through her mom's list of all the men, she just gets closer and closer to Yerabuni, and they really are falling for each other. But there's one little problem, which is that Nara is not out as bisexual with her family at all. And in Armenian culture, it is not, it is rarely accepted. It is it is um, difficult. So the it is a coming out story. It's definitely a coming out story. But I felt it needed to be a coming out story because in Armenian culture, this is still such a big problem like today like right now things are difficult still so I wanted to write this story to show uh, as like a comfort book like a queer Armenian comfort book that things can turn out okay and even if you know they don't a lot of the time this book can be you know like a little beacon of hope I I hope for anyway I hope that's what it does well it seems to be doing that beautifully so I'm so glad it's out there listeners go get yourself a copy this has been so fun. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me, Talene. I loved it. And um, yeah, I just appreciate your time. Me too. This is great. Thank you so much. Thank you. SSR is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR Podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind-the-scenes inside scoop, and some good old-fashioned book talk. 
Find us at SSR Pod on Instagram and Twitter and search SSR Podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast.